One of the most perplexing parts of the Christian life is the disappointment we experience due to unanswered prayer or, you know, so-called unanswered prayer. Years ago, uh, one of my daughters came to me. I can't remember who it was. And she said, Dad, I just don't feel like my prayers are doing any good. And I said, um, honey, I feel that way sometimes too. And the thing that adds to the confusion, it's not as though we're praying to God for like a Mercedes Benz or, you know, it's not like we're offering to God these blatantly selfish prayers for a cool car or winning the lottery or anything like that. We're, we're praying for sick people to get healed, for terrible situations to become a little less terrible. I mean, they're good prayers that we pray and we pray again and we pray again and again and then nothing happens and as a result, um, doubts start to creep into our minds, and I think we have this thing called prayer cynicism that builds up inside of us, that takes residence inside of us, and, and we tend to bottle that cynicism up rather than uh, vocalizing it. So today's parable, Luke 18, verses 1 through 8, is not found in any of the other Gospels. It's only in Luke's Gospel. And Jesus is confronting you know, this, common, this, this issue that is common to all of us when it comes to prayer. He told them, his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up, 18.1. He said, In a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared what people thought. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, Grant me justice against my adversary. For some time the judge refused. But finally he said to himself, Even though I don't fear God or care what other people think, Yet, because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't, (laughs) this is funny, and she won't eventually come and attack me. And the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? We'll pray one more time. Father, increase our faith through this teaching of Jesus so that when the Son of Man comes, if if he happens to come um, even in our lifetime, then he would find faith in us. Uh, Teach us, Lord, that we would learn how to pray, to pray persistently, to pray more effectively. We, we don't oftentimes feel like our prayers are very good um, or that they're making much of a dif- difference. So we need your help. And we ask that you would come and teach us and speak to us now. Uh, do that in the name of Jesus. Amen. So it's a, a simple parable, right? We have a widow who has been wronged, who goes to a corrupt judge, she appeals again and again and again, and eventually she gets justice. And Jesus doesn't leave us wondering, like, what does this parable mean? There's not a lot of interpretive work you have to do. Uh, he interprets it for us. He says, keep on praying and do not lose heart. It's very short. It's very simple. It's like rinse, rinse and repeat, that type of thing. But what I'd like to do is analyze it more deeply because that's typically what we do in sermons, right, is try to go a little bit deeper and and what I, what I thought was the first noteworthy thing about the parable is simply uh, these two characters, they're, they're polar opposites. They're, they're, they're stereotypical opposites. He's a man. She's a woman. He's powerful. She's powerless. 
He's presumably rich and well off. She's dirt poor. And she has no advocate. See, that's the thing that a first century reader, somebody back in that day, would, would immediately recognize. Because in the ancient world, legal matters were always taken up by a patriarchal figure, either a father or a brother um, or a husband. If your father wasn't living, if you didn't have a husband, then your brothers would take care of it. Uh, among the, the many different ways that women were considered second-class citizens in the first century is they were not allowed to testify in a court of law. Like in the Roman Empire, women couldn't go a woman could not could not go to court. She could not be an advocate for herself in court. And so the suggestion is in the story, in the telling of the story, that this is a poor widow who has no children, who has no husband, who has no sons, who has no brothers, a woman with absolutely no legal standing, no representation. In other words, she's a woman who doesn't have a chance. She doesn't have a chance because she's all on her own. Verse 2, you, you look at the judge as he's described here. In a certain town there was a judge. Two ways Jesus describes him. He does not fear God. So if he doesn't fear God and he's living back in that day, then he's far more likely to be corrupt and to accept bribes. So he doesn't fear God. He's a corrupt, bribe-taking judge. And he doesn't care what people think. Or another way of translating that is he doesn't, care about how people feel. In other words, he's a judge who doesn't care about victims. He doesn't care about victims or victimization. And the reason this is important is one of the major themes in Luke's gospel is in his day, there were so many oppressed and poor people living in the land of Israel who were suffering terribly at the hands of Israel's leaders, at the hands of the religious leaders and the judges, and the Romans, and like everybody. At the very beginning of the gospel, Mary, and this is one of the reasons why I, I had um, you know, the connection of the call to worship to Mary, she composes a story, I mean a song rather, of how God in the Messiah will turn the world upside down, her world upside down, so that those who are low and downtrodden would be lifted up, and those who are high and fat cats would would be brought down. And so... Um, this whole theme of, of, the, of people who are in charge, who have no fear of God and don't care a lip, lick for victims, was something very much in play in, um, in, in that day. The only thing this woman has in her favor is what? It's her persistence. <laughs> it's this dogged determination that she will not give up. Day after day, knocking on his door, like, judge, judge, judge. She will not take no for an answer. Which we, you know, admire her as a character. But we can also imagine how that felt. Because when you, um, when you pray to God and you ask for something again and again and again and nothing happens, you start to wonder, like, is anything going to change? Does God... Is God there? Does he care? Is anything going to change? And, and you really do begin to lose hope, especially if you're in a situation where you're suffering, like not only day after day, but hour by hour, you're suffering and you're asking and nothing's happening. Is anything ever going to change? We're not the first people to ask that kind of question. Psalm 10. Why do you stand far off, O Lord? 
Psalm 13. Will you forget me forever? 22. My God, why have you forsaken me? 44. Why do you hide your face from me? 77. Has your steadfast love ceased forever? 79. Will you be angry forever? And 90. Will you be silent forever? Like in every one of those, the, the psalmist is asking God for something, to some kind of relief from their suffering, and they're starting to lose heart. God is so silent. Why isn't he working? Is he even there? Does he even care? Does he even exist? Does he even exist or is he, or, or is he, or is he an unjust judge? I think if Jesus had never told this parable, I doubt any of us would have dared to make the comparison that he makes in the parable to liken God, God, the God Almighty, the God of the universe, to a corrupt judicial figure. But I think he tells it that way because while we might not say it, we've, we've probably felt, we felt it before. We felt like he's that way, that he's not fair, that he doesn't care, that he's unjust. And Jesus says, keep on praying. You know, don't lose heart. Don't keep, don't quit. Keep on knocking. Um, what I find so remarkable about the Psalms is that instead of the psalmist clamming up and going radio silent on God, when they're at their deepest and darkest spiritual moments, they have the courage to acknowledge and to vocalize what it is that's going on inside of them. Like somewhere along the way, I don't know how it happens. We, we, somehow we come to believe that prayer is, is just supposed to be language of like confidence. My confidence always in God. Um, no. <laughs> I, I, well, the definition, like Peter and I, we meet every week. And the, one of the definitions, haven't I given you this definition of prayer? I think I have. <laughs> that prayer is simply making an honest self-disclosure of what's, what's, what's true inside of you to him. Like making a, a candid, realistic, accurate self-disclosure. Like if you're full of, if you're full of praise for him, then, then say that, then shout that, shout it aloud. If you're full of thanksgiving inside, then shout, then say, you say that to him. If you're full of contrition, you say that. If you have a desire, a need, you express that. And if you are full of like deep, dark, horrible doubts, then you are, you must say that to him. Because if you just keep bottling it up inside, it just, it kills you spiritually. It creates all kinds of like prayer scar tissue. Um, when, when, when we cotton candy it, we're like, oh, I'm just fine. I'm fine. When we're not fine, when we, fe- when we refuse to recognize and acknowledge the spiritual despair, well, it's just silly because God knows. He knows. He already knows. Um, something I, I do like to say is this, that when you pray, it's okay not to be okay as long as you acknowledge that. <laughs> it's okay not to be okay as long as you acknowledge that I'm not okay, Lord. I, I, I am, I'm at my wit's end. You stand far off. You forget me. You forsake me. You hide your face from me. I'm not okay. I'm not okay with that. But I will, I'll tell you. 
Anybody here familiar with the name Nathan John Feuerstein? I bet you Anya recognized that one. No? No, probably didn't. No. What about his stage name, NF? Yeah, okay, there we go. Christian rapper, hip-hop artist, pretty popular. I, I think he's actually quite talented. And one of his albums he released five years ago or so, it's entitled Mansion. The unifying metaphor he keeps returning to in all of the songs on the album Mansion is that is that our souls are like this big old... This big old house that have many rooms inside of them. And some of those rooms, uh, they hold memories. Some of those rooms are dreams for the future. Some of those rooms are very dark and rarely visited. NF, if I'm not mistaken, uh, he was abused as a kid, and then his mom OD'd, and um, she died. And and so he's got a lot of really dark rooms, and, and a lot of his art is, is him exp- expressing, like, I've got dark, traumatic memories, and I don't go into that room because that's a bad room for me. He says, some rooms I spend a lot of time in. Other rooms are all cobwebbed, and some rooms some rooms are just torn to shreds, full of anger. And in some of the rooms, I just try to ignore. I ignore. What rooms do you try to ignore inside your soul mansion. Um, for me, I discovered the rooms that I, I don't like to even acknowledge are the rooms that are full of disappointment. Um, I just prefer to to kind of gloss over <laughs> all disappointments, and and I don't acknowledge those usually. Uh, um, I and even when I have, especially when I have disappointment with God. Even though I know that it's probably not justified, but if I feel disappointed with God. That's a room that I will not open because uh, I, I I don't know I mean I feel like I shouldn't go in there that that it's wrong of me to go in there and he and he was he talks about that in his song like I just don't go into that room I just ignore that room and when we don't vocalize when we don't enter those rooms when we bottle it up um, it's not what your father wants for you verses four and five. So for some time, this judge refused. But finally, he said to himself, even though I don't fear God and care what people think, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I'll see that she gets justice. And then I just think it's kind of funny how Jesus tacks on this last phrase, but never interprets it in the parable. Like, we don't understand how this part works out. So she won't eventually come and attack me. As if, like, is God up there afraid that we're going to attack him? So to, he doesn't He doesn't go there. He doesn't talk about that. Um, I, I get that the parable is to teach us that we're to keep on praying, um, keep on talking, keep on asking. I love, there's a, the massive theme of Jesus' prayer teaching is ask and it shall be given to you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and the door shall be open for you. This is Matthew 6. For everyone who, who asks receives and he who seeks finds and to him who knocks it shall be opened. And there's, there's all these prayer promises that make it seem like all you just got to do is ask God, for what you want, and boom, it's going to happen. And then, well, it doesn't. <laughs> uh, so often, that's just not our experience with prayer. And so, I get that we should be persistent. But there's a question I think that's also worth asking. How, When do we stick to our prayers? And, and just like, no matter what, keep praying and pestering God for the same thing. And when do we like stop asking for the same thing? And 
and just like change our request and, and submit to the to the Father who who knows best. Have you ever asked that question? Like, when you are you persistent, and when do you pivot? There's an instructive passage for us in Paul's writing, the second letter he wrote to the Corinthians, chapter 12. Um, he says he's given this autobiographical little snapshot, but it's cryptic. It's not clear. He, he says, "I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me." Now, he never tells us what the thorn in the flesh was. He never says another word. He doesn't, he doesn't give us an idea. It's just some kind of horrible affliction. You know, maybe it was a bodily affliction. Maybe it was a mental illness affliction. Maybe he couldn't see. He was blinded. Maybe it was an adversary. He doesn't tell us. He just says, three times I asked God, take it away. Now, you would think, why did he only pray it three times? And the answer is because that's a Hebrew idiom. <laughs> three times doesn't mean three times. It means I prayed over and over and over again, God, take this away. Please take this away. Like every day he was praying, Lord, take it away. This is horrible. Take my affliction away. <sighs> Until verse 9. But God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And he never explains that either. He doesn't say to God came to me in a vision. He gave me a dream. He just said it was like one day he he sensed that the father's heart, that the father wanted to give him something different than he was asking. And so he stopped praying, Lord, take it away. And he started praying, Lord, let your power be made perfect in my weakness. And, and that's what he daily was asking God, God for. Um, you know, some of you have prayed for years for, um, you know, your children to turn out a certain way. You, you just, like, the thing is, you have kids and you just want them to be healthy and well adjusted and you just want their joy in life. You, you just want them to, you want them to experience so much greater quality of life than you yourself had. And you just pray, Lord, please give it to them. And, and then you see them going on a, a terrible path. And you pray and you pray and you pray. And, and it doesn't change. Um, when are you supposed to change those prayers? Uh, it's so hard to know. Sometimes you pray for your parents to have a good marriage and then you watch them tragically divorce. And so the circumstance change. And so you know when the circumstance changes, you should change your prayer. And you begin to pray that God will use the failure and the, 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 um, the destruction of the marriage. He would use that to move them closer to Him. And then sometimes you just, you just sense God leading you that he's trying to give you something different. Like the Father's heart is for something else. And you, you realize he wants to give you something different. And so you begin praying differently. I love how this one author captures this dilemma. Because it is a dilemma that we face. Like on the one hand, if we overstress submission to the Father in prayer, like thy will be done, no questions asked. If we overstress that, we will become too passive. 
and never pray with the remarkable force and arguments that we see in, say, Abraham in Genesis 18 when he presses God to save Sodom and Gomorrah or Moses pleading with God for mercy for Israel in Exodus 33 or Habakkuk or Job you know, questioning God's actions and history. If we overstress thy will be done we won't be the persistent widow of Luke 18. We'll just be like, well, Father, whatever. you know. But, however, on the other hand, if we overstress persistence and don't have a sensitivity and aren't aware that our Father wants to give us something different, then we will become either like very angry when our prayers are not answered or very depressed or both. And it, um, the way that he, uh, he, he summarizes it, he concludes by saying, it usually... It usually takes, where is it? It usually take, requires years of experience in petitionary prayer to find the proper balance. It, it takes a long while to know. And, and I think most of us would admit that we're just still not very good at knowing. But we're learning. We're learning. Verse 3. You know, so far, we've talked about prayer in general and the principle to keep on praying. Don't lose heart. Keep on going. But um, the principle applies to all prayer. There's a specific kind of prayer Jesus has in mind here. The widow says, grant me justice against my adversary. Again, in verse 7. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? And the, and the answer seems to be, no, he won't keep putting them off. This persistent widow, remember how I said that that a big deal in Luke's gospel was the oppressed in Israel at that time? She represents the oppressed in Israel waiting for the salvation of this Messiah, longing for the justice of the coming kingdom. I mean, in some ways, that actually was was started in the book of Acts and the early church. We, We see in the new Christian community of the first century that the, the, the poor and the oppressed were lifted up. Um, and the rulers, they are brought down. And so, yeah, like in a sense, God quickly and speedily answers her their prayers for justice through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So so that's it then? You know, God is going to answer all our prayers for justice speedily? <laughs> I mean, we know that's not how it works. He doesn't. Um, you know, the arc of justice, it... It is very, very long. And, and that is perplexing. Like you would think, knowing that God is righteous and just, you would think that like prayers for justice would, would have such a, a pull on his heart. Like he would speedily answer prayers for justice. Like, yes! Because he is a righteous God. But they're not. And, and that's one of the, the hardest parts of unanswered prayer is unanswered prayers for, for justice to take place. Why? Like, why is it that? Why, why does God do it that way? Again, I don't have a, a great answer, but I have two possible answers. One of the doctrinal, doctrinal commitments of Reconciled Church is called the Westminster Confession of Faith. And at one point, it's talking about God. It's, there's one, there's but one, only, there's one only living and true God who is infinite in being and perfection, a most pure spirit, invisible, I love this last one, invisible, immense, eternal, and incomprehensible. I mean, maybe, 
One of the reasons why God doesn't instantly answer all of our good prayers in the affirmative is if he did that, if there was a nearly a perfect correlation between what we ask for and what ends up happening, we would get a, a skewed view of him. Like he would become for us a genie in a bottle. Rub him, ask your wish, your wish is my command. Uh, it would be like a, a celestial bellhop that we ring the bell and Here's what I want for you to do, Lord. He's just waiting there to serve our every request. And the problem with that is we would not think of him as that last line. Immense, eternal, and incomprehensible. Because we have them all figured out. Because he wants to do exactly as we would want him to do. And, and maybe that's the reason why he doesn't answer every one of our good prayers with, I'm on it, immediately. Because he's incomprehensible. Uh, a second one, and again, I don't know if this is the, the best answer, but if there was a perfect correlation between what we ask and what we get, uh, I think that the church would be flooded with all the, <laughs> with a lot of people who were in for the wrong reasons. You know, they would come to Christianity kind of like in Acts chapter 8. There's a story of Simon Magnus, who, Simon the sorcerer, Simon the magician, who is attracted to the Christian faith because he sees the apostles working miracles. And he's like, I want to do that too. Um, I'll become a Christian if you give me that kind of power. And in fact, in order to make sure you do, I'll give you a little bribe. He pushes a bribe towards Peter and, and they're like, no. But if all of our prayers were answered in a snap, that would happen. Like People would come to Jesus for all the wrong reasons. They would, they'd, they'd want to marry him for his money if you will. And that's the best I can do. I, maybe you have a better answer for the problem of unanswered prayer, but I just know, I know that he will. There's not a single true thing as unanswered prayer. Like Sometimes he answers with a no, but every prayer for justice, he will answer with a yes. Ultimately, there's not a single unanswered prayer of justice that it, yes indeed the arc of the moral universe bends long but it bends towards justice it it will be fully just on the last day when jesus returns and that's kind of where i want to uh conclude is is praying about that actually right after communion today we're going to offer a prayer of justice uh for the the reformation of our criminal justice system. You know, most people recognize that the system in the United States is just broken. It's, yeah, it is unjust. Um, we have in the United States 4% or so of the world's population. We have 16% of the world's prisoners. We have the highest incarceration rate per capita of any country in the world. We have more prisoners in the United States than Russia and China combined. You know, and, and the United, um, Arizona has the fifth highest incarceration rate in the United States. And, you know, it disproportionately affects African Americans and, and, and Latinos. It does. Uh, those communities. And so we will pray a justice prayer. I, I did my best to write one and we'll go for it. But let me conclude with one word that should be in your prayers far more often than it is. It's not the word amen. But this is a word that you should regularly, I would say you should regularly play this, like every week at least. Um, it's, a, it's a special word. To the best of my knowledge, it is the only Aramaic word 
that was ever carried in to Christianity. So Aramaic was the language that Jews spoke in the first century. They wrote in Hebrew, they spoke in Aramaic. Uh, this is an Aramaic word that, that Christians started to use because Paul includes it at the end of his first letter to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 23. Mara means Lord. En means our. And Atha means come. You know, come our Lord. Maranatha. Come our Lord. And according to one of the earliest Christian manuals, like it was basically a way to train young Christians in, in how to follow Jesus. It was called the Didache. They would celebrate the Lord's Supper in all of their, their early meetings. And at the end, they would pray. And they would pray. their prayer would be Mar- Maranatha. Come, Lord. Our Lord, come. That single word is, is really a whole prayer. It's a prayer with this this glorious future in mind. Come, Lord, come. Heal this broken place. You'll bring justice to this terribly unjust place. Verse 7 now. And will God not bring about justice for His chosen ones who cry out to Him day and night? Will He keep putting them off? I tell you, He will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will He find faith on the earth? I hope you will find faith in us and that faith will be expressed in Maranatha in those prayers. Come, Lord, come. Like, do you want justice and righteousness to come into this world? If you do, pray, come, Lord Jesus. Do, do you want to see um, the oppressed like, freed from their shackles? Come, Lord Jesus. Like, let your kingdom come. And your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That with Maranatha, that's what it means. And that's what we must pray. So that when Jesus, the Son of Man, returns, he'll, he'll find persistent widows down here on earth and he will reward them with the justice they're so eagerly searching for. Amen.